Well, good morning. Pray that you are filled with the Holy Spirit this morning and that you are able to hear and listen to God, bring his message of hope, his message of peace, his message of love to you this morning. If you're visiting, I welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. We're continuing on in our sermon series which is called Jesus, the Savior of the World. Really the essence of the book of Luke. Now, before I read the scripture, I want to give a brief introduction and then a background. I want to start off by telling you how overwhelming these 20 verses were for me this week, this last week. There was so much here. I could have easily preached eight or nine sermons from this text. Now you're like, what in the world? If you could look at this passage and you could look at the reliability and the historicity of Jesus, you could see the nature and the necessity of repentance. You could look and see the fruit of repentance. You could look and see the biblical idea of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. You could look at the reality of a coming judgment, the necessity of turning to Christ for salvation. You could look at the reality of the mercy of God in Christ to a sinful man, the reality of the Holy Spirit's refining work in our lives, his sanctification. You could even look at the persecution that God's people can expect if they share the gospel of Jesus. But I'm not gonna do that. I had to pick one. So we're just going to look at the message of the coming judgment of God as good news to those who mourn over their sin and embrace the reality that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to cleanse us of our sin and make us a holy people. Let me give you a brief background of where we're at in this particular passage in Luke. In case you just have just joined us for this, we're looking at Luke from the perspective of Christ as the Savior of the world. Now, in our story so far, Jesus has been born, he's grown up to about 12 years old, and has shown that his purpose is to do whatever the Father wanted him to do, which is ultimately to save us from our sin. From our last sermon, we have skipped now 18 years in the life of Jesus, and we're probably somewhere, if you look at the dating of all of the, 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 the tetrarchs and all this stuff, probably somewhere around 27 to 29 AD. Um, Jesus now, as you see later in the passage, is about 30 years old. Now, we don't really know anything about Jesus' life from 12 to 30. We just don't. All we know is that he grew wiser, he grew stronger, and he found favor with God and people. There you go. That's what Jesus did in those 18 years. Of course, he did a lot more than that, but we don't know what it is. So now Jesus is about 30 years old where we begin this passage. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. This is the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Aturia, and Traconitus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, 
The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked places the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Task collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what, must we do? what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. And all God's people said. Now, before I get into verses 1 to 20, I want to root you and ground you in the flow of, of these chapters, basically chapters 3 and 4. I want to give you the big idea so we don't get lost in these smaller sections. This section, 1 through 20 in chapter 3, Jesus is Yahweh who will bring either salvation or wrath. In 3, 21 and 37, we see Jesus as the unique and perfect beloved Son of God who is a fit vessel for the Holy Spirit. In 4, 1 to 13, we see Jesus as the Son of God, the perfect second Adam, who perfectly trusts and submits to God. Then in 4, 14 to 15, we see Jesus as the one empowered by the Spirit who teaches and receives glory. And finally, in 4, 16 to 30, we see Jesus as the liberator of his people, as the Savior. So what's going on? It's all about who Jesus is. Can you see that? He's this to John. He's this to the Father. He's this to the devil. He's this to the crowds. He's this to himself, right? who he is. So... Luke is choosing these stories to show us clearly that Jesus is both God and man who is truly the Savior of the world. And then in 
in ultimately, as we have this framework, let's look at our text. Diving in to this, I want to, before I get to the first point, who is Jesus, I'm actually going to look at these first few verses because they're kind of outside of what the main points of what I'm talking about, but I want to cover them. I want you to see in, in these first two verses how accurately Luke describes the time when Jesus began his ministry. He pinpoints a historical setting and date, the 15th year of Tiberius, and then gives all of these tetrarchs. This, again, as I said, is around 27, 29 AD, given Tiberius's reign. The other tetrarchs and the high priesthood at the time, and by the way, if you're confused when it talks about the, the, the two priests, both Annas and Caiaphas, just an FYI, so Annas was like a high priest at the beginning of this time, uh, like earlier in, in maybe 6, 7 AD. And then his son became, his son-in-law became high priest. But Annas was actually kind of still in charge somewhat. So he would basically help his son-in-law, if you want to help his son-in-law reign. So that's why you see this. They spoke of him as these two high priests when really there was only one high priest. But Annas was just basically still around, and he was controlling stuff. And you see that at the end of Jesus' life there. Now, um, Luke here is not trying to hide anything. He wrote this before the close of the first century. And so if you were alive at this time and you heard all of these names, guess what you could do? You could pull out your iPhone and look it up. No, you don't have an iPhone. But you could go and look and talk to historians, to people who were alive, and you could actually find out that these were real men who lived, and you could pinpoint the exact year. So this is very historical. Luke is saying, remember, he said, Theophilus, I'm sending you an orderly account so that you may know, right? So at, when you look at verse 2b, John, the son of Zechariah, came, he received the word of God. Now, this phrase, the word of God came to John, is actually similar to how other prophets in Israel have received the revelation of God. The language is found throughout the minor prophets and throughout the major prophets. And the last prophet who had received the word of the Lord, like John, was Malachi, some 460 years earlier. And so Luke wants us to know that John's word is trustworthy because it doesn't come from John. It comes from God himself. It is the word of the Lord. What John is saying to the crowds is not his words. It's the very word of God. And so John, in modern lingo, he's legit. He's a legit prophet. And what are these words that he says? Three words. All must repent in order to be forgiven of sins. Repentance, forgiveness, and sin. So sometimes in our lives we have these hazy definitions of these words. And I want to bring you a crystal clear definition of repentance, forgiveness, and sin. Repentance first. It's the idea of changing our minds or turning about it is a conversion towards God. I'm, I'm away from God, and when I repent, I turn toward God, and my life and everything that I am is now moving towards God as ultimate one who's in control and in charge. 
And what it is, is it's a remorse or regret for how the actions that we have done have misaligned with God's desires, his commands, his precepts, his laws. We feel sorry in our souls, in our inner being, for rebelling against God and living our own desires out, and we now accept and obey God's will instead of ours. We now live differently because of it. That is repentance. What is sin? Sin, as the Westminster Confession says, is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And you're like, what does that mean? What it means is it means you don't do what he tells you to, and the things he tells you to, you just kind of leave them undone, right? So you straight up disobey and do exactly what he tells you not to do, but the thing he tells you to do, you're like, yeah, you know, and you don't do it. That's sin. It's missing the mark. It's like an arrow that you would shoot and you missed the mark completely and you shot something else that you weren't supposed to. It's departing from God's divine standards and standing in legitimate and real guilt and shame because you've rebelled against him. Because you have not done those things that he has told you to do and you've left undone those things that you should do. You've actually rebelled against him and done things he's told you explicitly not to do. Forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is pardon or cancellation of the debt or punishment that God requires because of our sin. Because God is not able to look upon sin in his presence. God is so perfect, so holy, so just that Anything that is corrupt and vile and does not align with him will be destroyed in his presence. That is the idea. So he cannot have them in his presence. They must be away from him. And so forgiveness is essentially when that guilt, that shame, those things that deserve God's wrath and justice are washed away, canceled. And so John was preaching or proclaiming, making an announcement that if anybody repents, that they can find forgiveness for their sins before God and stand before God without fear. This repentance grants us something, but it doesn't actually grant that thing because of the repentance itself. As if somehow, if you, if you repent good enough, then God will forgive you. If your repentance is genuine enough or perfect enough, it doesn't have any mixture of, 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 of yourself in it or whatever the case may be, that somehow that is perfect repentance you're forgiven. No, the reality is that Jesus is the means of our pardon because we throw ourselves on him and we trust his person and his work and that is what it gives us forgiveness of sins, not whether or not our repentance meets a certain standard. Now, repentance obviously needs to be real and legitimate, but your repentance is not what saves you. Jesus saves you. Jesus' work saves you. He died to pay our penalty and rose from the dead to prove it worked. And when you throw yourself on him in mercy, no matter how weak your faith is, you're forgiven because Jesus is strong. He's the mighty one. Our repentance, in other words, is simply our alignment with the truth that we believe that we have sinned, 
We have departed from God's standards and are guilty before him and we are obligated to be punished eternally for our guilt. And since we know that God offers pardon or the cancellation of this obligation by trusting in Christ, we throw all of our trust upon Jesus to free us from the justice that we deserve. That is those first four verses. That's the essence of the gospel. That is our message. Now, let's move into our first point that now that we understand John's message, right? Because the, the message was repentance, forgiveness of sins. So now John is basically going to talk about that, how he gave his message, right? How did he give his message of repentance and forgiveness of sins? Well, now let's get into it. First, our first point, verses four to five. Who is Jesus? Because repentance and forgiveness of sin comes through Jesus. So who is he? And you know what the answer to that is? He is Yahweh, the I am, the eternal God. He is king. Now, John is quoting Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. And these verses were for the Jews this, this type or represent, of representation of God's coming salvation that they were all waiting for. for so these three, these three verses in Isaiah 40, to the Jews, they were the salvation that every Jew was looking for. And longing for. So this is significant that he's quoting this. These verses are actually part of an introduction of chapters 40 to 55 in Isaiah, which announces the ultimate fulfillment of the saving message of God. Now, in Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 2, it speaks of the consolation that God's deliverance brings, and that is the restoration of God's people. And then verses 3 to 5, which John is quoting here, is the response to this restoration and the call for transformation in preparation for Yahweh's return. So here it is. Yahweh is returning. You better get ready. That's what Isaiah is talking about. The hope, salvation, redemption, it's coming. Do you want it? Well, you better get ready. That's what we're talking about here. The way for the Messiah will be expedited made faster as obstacles are removed for him. He will level the playing field. He will make the proud humble. He will bring about this humbling of these, these mighty. And for the weak and the humble who are humble already, and for the sinful people, they'll be received. The coming of the Lord spoken here is the coming of Yahweh. It says the Lord, Yahweh. If you look in your Bibles in Isaiah, it's all in capitals, L-O-R-D. That means it refers to the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So the one who's coming is Yahweh, the eternal God. Who is John talking about here that is the one who is coming? Jesus. Jesus is being said to be the eternal God. Yahweh, the I am, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. This is a significant because he is the God-man. And so the people at this time would have seen him and seen him walking and having flesh just like you and me. And to say that someone who has flesh like you and me is, the, is Yahweh, the I am, would have been hard to believe. Hard to believe. So he's going to level these things out. The eternal God has come. By quoting this, Jesus, John is basically saying that Jesus is the I am. 
And then in verse 5 of Isaiah 40, it speaks of the universal vision of God's salvation. All flesh, all people groups will be allowed to see and embrace salvation through the true Jesus, the Savior of the world. It is no longer just simply for the Jews. Now, of course, we know that during the Old Testament, there could be conversions, but you had to become a Jew in order to be part of God's covenant. No longer do you have to become a Jew. Right? Abraham's children are those who trust in Christ, who have faith. So the purpose of this quote from Isaiah aligns with Luke's actual purpose of the book, to establish that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's going to restore Israel to God, and he will ensure the mission of the Gentiles as promised to Abraham. He will show the power of God's word. He will show his power compared to the frailty of God's enemies and his people's enemies. And so this quote by John the Baptist, and really this whole section, helps us to understand Jesus' ministry, which is where we see our second point from verses 6 and 7, where we see the question of, what will Jesus do? What will Jesus do? Well, would you like to know? He either is going to bring judgment or salvation. This is what Jesus is doing. You either get judgment or salvation. Verse 6 which is a brief citation of Isaiah 52.10, because he actually takes Isaiah 40 and then he takes 52.10, answers the question, what will Jesus do? He will bring salvation to the world. When it says here that all flesh will see the salvation of God, it's speaking of the reality that God has in Christ opened salvation to non-Jews. They can now in Christ become a true part of God's people. Everybody who embraces Christ has received the way of peace that the angel proclaimed to the shepherds at Jesus' birth. Remember, I pronounce to you peace, goodwill to men, for those, in those whom God is pleased. Those who receive this peace are those whom God is now pleased with through his Son. In verse 7, you see that Jesus won't just bring salvation, but he will also bring judgment upon rebels. John the Baptist calls the people in the crowd a brood of vipers. Can you imagine if I'm out there and I'm like, you brood of vipers, you snakes. Do you know what the people would have heard? That they were the offspring of Satan. Genesis 3.15. That's what they would have heard. They were being called sons of Satan. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Basically, what John is saying here is, they are proving to be the offspring of the serpent, and they think that they can escape the wrath of Christ, the wrath of Christ, simply by getting baptized, having a little right, doing a little thing. Baptism doesn't save you. Christ saves you. Baptism is a sign of his salvation. And so these vipers are those, if you look at Isaiah 59, 5 to 8, which actually parallels 40, verse 3, these vipers are those who are called the crooked. Their ways are crooked. They live lives of injustice. They don't live the ways of peace. So what, what John the Baptist is doing here is he's connecting the idea of vipers with Isaiah 59, which is connected to Isaiah 40. And basically, these are the people whose ways are crooked. And the Messiah is going to come and level the crooked ways. And so the people who reject and oppose Christ will meet the reality of the wrath to come. 
which is the destructive fire of the judgment of God. This language actually is parallel to what our scripture reading was, if you caught it this morning, in Malachi 3 and Malachi 4. When it was talking about all that judgment, you're wondering, like, why in the world is our scripture reading about all this judgment and fire and burning and all this stuff? Well, that's what John the Baptist, remember, John the Baptist was spoken of as the prophet to come in Malachi 3 and 4. So Malachi 3 and 4 is simply saying this prophet to come, and John the Baptist is basically citing Malachi 3 and 4. Why? Because he is the guy who's to come. That was prophesied in Malachi 3 and 4. And so the language of this coming messenger is John. And so in these verses, we see that Jesus will either bring salvation or he will bring judgment. And so John is laying this before those who are listening to him. Now, this brings us to our third point, which is the logical question when such weighty things are presented. Verses 8 to 14, what must we do? And this is answered by calling people to prepare the way in themselves by exercising repentance and by bearing fruit. You see, in verses 8 to 9, John lays out the idea that the people of Israel cannot rely upon their Abrahamic ancestry. Instead, they need to repent and bear fruit. Now, John is getting this imagery from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, where the prophet speaks of Abraham as the rock from which God's people were cut and have God's blessing upon them. So the people of Abraham, the children of Abraham are, called, are, are cut from the rock, Abraham, right? So Israel was supposed to be God's people. They were supposed to be in God's place. They were supposed to be living under God's rule and blessing. And God's blessing to Abraham would ultimately lead to the blessing of the nations, Jesus would be the offspring promised to Abraham who would bless the nations. And as Jesus taught, those that are found in him would bear fruit among the nations. And so just like the land that God promised to Israel would be abundant and fruitful, so were God's people. You and I are supposed to be fruit, bearing fruit, hundredfold. Bear fruit with, according to your repentance. And so in, so in other words, those who are brought into Christ will bring fruit that aligns with the reality of their salvation. This is the book of James. He says, oh, you say you have faith. Great. So do demons. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Because my faith is real. Because I know Jesus. And his image is in me. And that image pushes out of me. That is faith without works. It's dead. Because faith alone means nothing. Because if your faith, if your trust in God has nothing to do with your life, then it means you actually aren't trusting in God. And that's really where John's going to. I mean, so John the Baptist says to, basically says, hey, you Israelites that are relying upon your Abrahamic ancestry, that's not good enough. That's not gonna cut it, cut it for you to be God's people. Even though they are like the stones cut from Abraham, God can take 
actual stones and make them Abraham's children. That, don't get past the imagery. I am sure there were rocks around. And John the Baptist is like, you see that, you see that little rock there? Do you know that God can make a child of Abraham from that rock? Just because you have ancestry means nothing to you, nothing. Because God does that. Now, you know what, what came to my mind as I was studying this? Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This, I think, clearly points to Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one who would come in and take our hearts of stones and make them flesh so that we will be true children of Abraham. Paul, in his letters, actually speaks of the faith as that which makes you a child of Abraham. And faith is a gift of God given to us, to dead, hard, stony hearts that want nothing to do with God. Only the Holy Spirit Giving, coming in and taking a heart of stone and ripping it out and putting a brand new heart in you that has Christ in it, that is what saves you. Nothing else will. Not attending church, not going to small groups, not praying. Jesus alone saves you. Throughout the Old Testament, at various times, Israel is called a fruitless vine. And these fruitless vines are good for nothing. They need to be cut down, thrown into the fire. And that image of your fire, as I was saying, is found in Malachi 3 and 4, which ties John the Baptist's ministry to the coming of the Messiah. So now in verses 10 to 14, some of the people are convicted and they don't know what to do. They ask John for guidance. And you know what he tell them? He basically says, live lives loving God and have it outwork in lives loving others. And so throughout the scriptures, God clearly speaks of love for God as demonstrated in care for others by helping the hungry, the cold, the homeless, the widows, and many others, as well as making sure not to defraud others and steal from them for the good of self. That's the second tablet of the law. Love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. Seems like John is basically telling them that the response to the salvation in Christ is a change to the way you deal with others. And this reiterates the idea of Exodus 20 in the preface of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall. The indicative, what God did, what God has done, makes the imperative happen, which is what God requires of you. Without the indicative, the imperative is lifeless and dead and will still end, land you in hell. With the indicative that God has saved you, now the imperative is what it looks like to be and to know God. The final point now in verses 15 to 17 answers the question, what will the results of this Messiah be? And the answer is that judgment will come upon those who will not repent and purification will come upon those who do. And those who do are God's people who are united to Jesus Christ. You see, the people hear John the Baptist's amazing words and are filled with expectation of the coming of the kingdom. And in this expectation, they look at John, they're like, he's saying all these amazing things. This guy must be the Christ. This guy's got to be the Messiah. That's the one. And why would they think that? The answer is found in the idea of the Messiah as the one who comes in Malachi 3 and Psalm 118, they were obviously a little off here, right? Because they missed the messenger who would prepare the way for the 
for Yahweh, the Messiah. So they kind of missed a step. So the Messiah or Christ is the strong one, the anointed one, the strong one of God. And the Messiah is the, is the chosen one on whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest and the one who will walk in the power of the Spirit. The imagery that John gives is all throughout Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 11:2, which says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's talking about the Messiah to come. You see, the one who prepares the way of the Lord, the Messiah, is going to simply proclaim the message and prepare the people for the coming by, for, for the coming of the Messiah by baptizing them with water, which is a symbol of repentance and cleansing. But the Messiah, the Christ, he will be given the Holy Spirit who will rest upon him. And that Messiah will pour out the Holy Spirit upon his people giving them the gift of God in them. The language of baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire here is not referring to two baptisms. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire. It's not what it's referring. It's referring to one. And you see that because it's addressed to you, the group that he's talking to. The language of spirit and fire are seen together in Isaiah 30. And it speaks of the discriminating judgment of God. And when you take Isaiah 30, Isaiah 30 with Isaiah 32, it shows us that Jesus will either bring re, re judgment or he will purify his people through his own work. So, you see, either people will be cleansed by the fire of the Holy Spirit or they will be punished and destroyed as chaff that is burned up. On Pentecost, Jesus ascended up to heaven and at his res resurrection, he was gifted with the Holy Spirit. And now because of this, he gifts the Holy Spirit to his people. Because we are sinful and we need sanctification, we receive the Holy Spirit in tongues of fire. Purification. That's what fire does. But Jesus Christ, he, in the next passage we'll see, receives the Holy Spirit as a dove. Why? because Jesus is the perfect landing zone for the Holy Spirit, and we are not. We need purified. And so, he is completely perfect in every way. This passage ends then with John preaching, well, I should say, this passage ends with the end of John preaching. It basically says, and Herod did terrible things, and the biggest of all the terrible things he did was throw John in jail because John was telling Herod that he should not have his brother's wife. This was against the law. Herod was supposed to be following Jewish laws, and this was wrong. And John said, hey, Herod, you can't do this. Um, it was speaking against him publicly, and Herod was like, mm, you need to shut up, and he put him in jail. And so the end of this message is the here, even though we'll hear a little bit more about John, is really the end of John's story. John said, I must decrease and he must increase. He fades away, locked into a cell, eventually to be put to death. But Jesus now becomes our primary focus in the book of Luke. Why? Because Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, what do we do with the application for this? How do, how do you apply something like this? Well, obviously, the first is, 
that good news of the gospel is good news for some and bad news for others. You know, it's good news, but it's bad news if you just don't want it. For those who don't embrace the gospel, it's bad news. Jesus is coming with his winnowing fork. Basically, it was a tool to take and take wheat with all the chaff on it, with all the husks on it, and throw it up in the air. And they would oftentimes have people waving blankets or things like that. And then the chaff would be blown off and it would gather up. They'd sweep it up into a pile and they would light it on fire. And that was the end. That is what those who do not embrace Christ will receive. They will be those with the winnowing fork that are tossed up, separated, and sent to eternal darkness, where the weeping and gnashing of teeth is. For those who embrace the good news of Jesus, they are embracing the reality that they are sinful, and they are broken, and they are in desperate need of forgiveness. They believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, who came to grant forgiveness for their sin through his life and sacrificial death. They repent of their rebellion. They turn to God, despising their sin, despising the person that they were who would dare rebel against a holy and perfect God. You see, Jesus did come in time and history in the first century, in the early first century. But Jesus is coming again. Kids, adults who are questioning Wondering, when is the time to truly repent and go all in with Jesus? It's today. It's today. Because today is the day of salvation. The offer of salvation given here is offered. If you do not repent, you do not know whether Jesus will not come back tonight. And if Jesus comes back tonight, you will be as the shaft, blown away and thrown into the fire of outer darkness. The message of the gospel is a message of hope that you can repent now. You can turn to Christ now. Accept the reality of our sinfulness. Embrace the salvation that God gives in the person of Christ. Now, have you recognized Jesus as King, as Savior of the world? Have you exercised repentance for your sin? Have you allowed yourself to be cleansed by the fire of the Holy Spirit? If not, what are you waiting for? The day of judgment is coming and it might be here today. But if you are found in Christ, since you have turned to him in faith and repentance and you are waiting in anticipation for the second coming of Christ, this passage has a few things in it for you. First, live a life of love towards others by sharing your possessions with those who have none. Consider taking your excess goods and finding someone who's in need and helping them. How many outfits do you have in your closet? I bet you I have a lot that you don't wear, that you don't use. Do you need them all? How many people here in Nashua need clothes and only have one outfit? What are we doing stockpiling stuff? Can you help someone who needs? Second, live a life of love towards others by sharing your food with those who have none. Consider finding a good ministry like Southern New Hampshire Rescue Mission or Family Promise and like these dinners that we're going to be doing and helping, helping those who are struggling and donating them and volunteering and helping and giving of your time and your energy for people who need help. Third, live a life of others Live a life toward others by being honest in your dealings with them. Don't try to buy things from people and rip them off. That's a serious thing before God. You know before God, that's a serious thing. 
If you sell something, you're like, man, I got a lot out of that, probably more than it's worth. You know that's immoral and that's a sin. And then there's the flip side, which is, trying, is, which is basically trying to sell things for people for more than worth and that whole idea of the buying as well. And so you go to the, you know, when stores are sell things to you at a discount, that's fine. They're doing that. You're choosing that. When you see somebody and they have something that they're selling and you just try to barter with them and barter with them, barter with them until you, like you have to be, so, you're so stingy that you have to have the best of all possible deals and that person lost a lot of money out of it. That is living a life of lack of love towards others. I'm not saying don't be prudent with your money, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the heart of love is a heart of love all the time, not just sometimes. You see, love to God requires love to your neighbor. God made each person, and he wants his people to care for them since they're his creation, and they are valuable to him. Live a life of love. Be holy, be set apart as your God who is in heaven is holy. Father, thank you for the message of hope, the message of the gospel, the grace of Christ, the peace that we have in Jesus. You are so holy, you are so good. We praise you, we adore you, and we ask that you would make us people who live a life that is consistent with and at the fruit of repentance. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.